You are listening to a sermon from the Mulvane Church of Christ in Mulvane, Kansas. Subscribe in your favorite podcatching app or find and listen to any sermon online at mulvanechurch.com slash sermons. Our series title tonight as we continue our study of Hebrews in chapter 9, All Things Greater and Better in Christ uh, will have the Hebrew writer uh, making direct comparison between that which was provided before and that which is provided now. We studied last time in chapter 8, and we were on the uh, section where he was uh, showing that uh, now in Christ is a greater covenant and greater promises. And with that came the promise from the Old Testament from Jeremiah that there'd be a new covenant. So uh, there's no usurpation here. There's no uh, heresy of anyone saying, hey, uh, I've got something here different than what God has said before. We've got no no departure from the plan and method of God, (laughs) but rather we have his fulfillment and his its uh, culmination as it was long predicted by God. In chapter 8, verse 6, he obtained a more excellent ministry in which he's the, also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. And there had, would, <laughs> would have been no need sought for a second if there first had been faultless. Verse 8, for finding fault with him, he says, Now behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I'll effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And after quoting Jeremiah 31, we then had this conclusion at the end of chapter 8. When he said a new covenant, he's made the first obsolete. But whatever is becoming obsolete is growing old and ready to disappear. Now in chapter 9, we go on with a contrast of these two covenants, of their relative value, their relative value, their relative glory, and their relative effectiveness, and we'll see that the covenant that is in Christ wins on all counts. So chapter 9, as we'll go down to verse 14 tonight, asking this question, how much more will the blood of Christ work to save us than that which was before? So now the reading of Scripture, Hebrews chapter 9. Now, even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship and the earthly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one, in which the lampstand and the table and the sacred bread, that uh, this is called the holy place. Behind the second veil, uh, there was a tabernacle, which was called the holy of holies having a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden jar holding the manna and Aaron's rod which budded and the table of covenants. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. But of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Now then, these things have been so prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle 
and performing the divine worship. But in the second, only the high priest enters once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and the sins of the people committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing, which is a symbol for the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience, since they relate only to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. But when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things to come, he entered into the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For the blood of bulls, of goats and bulls, and the ashes of a heifer, heifer, sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So there was this great place of ministry. There was this great tabernacle that God had caused uh, to be built. And as uh, the Hebrew writer describes it, it has all of its parts. There are no pieces yet missing. Uh, there where he makes mention of uh, the uh, high priest making an, an offering for the sins done in ignorance. It's quite obvious he is referring to the day of atonement uh, sacrifice. So he's, he's referring to one of the most holy days of the year at a time when the tabernacle was early on and contained all its glory as it was, but still it is a uh, nothing in comparison with the ministry and workings of Christ. We know the tabernacle didn't always stay that way. We know that some of the pieces that are mentioned here in Hebrews 9, some of those were lost. Well, now they're all lost to history, but some of those were lost to the Jews uh, even before uh, they got the temple built uh, by Solomon. And then even the Ark of the Covenant, the very center of the Holy of Holies, that was lost. At some point around, it appears, uh, the uh, Babylonian captivity, when even that first great temple was destroyed. But even when the temple was all there, all new and fresh, not 440 years old, and I imagine, what did that, I know they had that beautiful porpoise skin, which was the top layer of the tabernacle. Uh, what did that look like after 450 years of sun and rain? Uh, uh, did they have to ever replace it? Did they just patch it? I don't know. I don't know what they do, but uh, it, it wasn't quite so glorious a place by the time they built the temple. But like all earthly things, it was subject to corruption and decay, just as those earthly priests themselves were. And so uh, there's the, the list of the furnishings in verse 2. There's a lampstand, Exodus 35. You can go read about that. There's the table and the sacred be uh, bread, Exodus 25. Uh, you can read about that. All these things uh, are solid gold, or if they're furniture, uh, they are um, 
acacia wood overlaid with gold. This was the holy place or the first room. This is the room that priests would go in daily. Verse 3 mentions a second veil or a second room behind which is the holy of holies. Exodus 26, if you want to go into that. There's a golden altar of incense. Leviticus 16, if you want more about that. There's the Ark of the Covenant. Again, Exodus 25, that that thing the size, basically, of a cedar chest. And it was a container uh, that would hold things. Of course, again, acacia wood overlaid with gold inside and out. It mentions the uh, golden jar. Uh, it's a container that was, uh, by our measurements, not quite two gallons. So a pretty decent-sized jar. It held uh, uh, some manna uh, from when God fed them. Uh, from heaven directly. It had Aaron's bud, Aaron's rod, which budded from the story there of God's selection and approval of Moses and Aaron uh, as the leaders, number 17. Uh, Those things appear to have been lost early on. Maybe the Philistines took them when uh, the Philistines had the Ark of the Covenant for a while. But all of these things here were, as the Hebrew writer presents them, New, see them new and fresh. Uh, see them uh, at their at their at the best they they were, and then the mercy seat, the ark of the covenant with the mercy seat on top, and of course how much has been said about the ark of the covenant, and uh, uh, as it, as he says here, we cannot speak now in detail. Well, we, we can make a long Bible study of it, just like now that we know what list of things to look at. We could uh, make a long Bible study as they did. Interestingly enough, even if we lived in ancient Israel, we wouldn't know much more about those things, and we wouldn't know any more by direct experience than we do now, because so few of the people ever got to see them. Uh, The priests saw them on a daily basis. Of course, not the same priest every day. After a while, they uh, would choose by lot as to which priest would uh, do the sacrifice, like uh, John the Baptist's father, uh, was one time chosen. Um, but uh, they would read about them. They would know about them the same way we do, by reading what Moses said. And so, uh, because they couldn't go in. And that's our next point, the limited access. So there's limited access to the priest alone of the entirety of it. And there's a greatly limited access to the Holy of Holies, where the high priest would go on the day of atonement. And so that's our next point. Verses 6 through 10, the author will show us how limited these things were. It really was somebody doing these divine things for the benefit of the people because they needed someone to uh, be the bridge, to be the connection between them and God. So verse 6, now these things having been so prepared the priest continually <laughs> continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing the divine worship again daily. Uh, read about that in the New Testament again. John the Baptist's father, Zacharias, sees an angel while he's doing this. But into the second, only the high priest enters once a year. So here's our day of atonement. And a, a day of atonement service is described here. He goes in once a year, and he goes with blood. He doesn't go without blood. When there is sin, there must be a shedding of blood. 
And so sometimes there are sins, uh, especially the shedding of blood, where it's called a blood guilt. And certainly a blood guilt is only dealt with with blood. Uh, but all the sins of the people ultimately are forgiven by blood. So the high priest, when he goes into this place, and he would enter two different times on that, and you can read this in Leviticus 16, he would go in uh, with incense and with the blood of a bull to be sprinkled on the mercy seat for his own sins. Then having done that, he'd go uh, out and come back with more uh, blood of a goat uh, to sprinkle on the mercy seat for the sins of the people. So incense and the blood of a bull and then the blood of a goat. And it mentions here the sins committed in ignorance. Uh, again, that's directly uh, from the service of the Day of Atonement. So the Holy Spirit then is signifying this. So all of this was a lesson. This wasn't the end-all and be-all. This was a significant thing, uh, but it signified a thing even more so. It signified that the way to the holy place had not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing. So the way to the true holy place, the way to the true presence of God, it wasn't revealed to the people during the time of the tabernacle. And we might also say roughly during the time of the temple as well. We think that is the significant portion of the fact that when the Jesus died, well, we're studying that on Luke in our Wednesday night study, uh, at the time that Jesus died, the veil tore. It tore, it says, from top to bottom. Normally something phrased from the bottom up, this tore from the top down. And it tore on its own. And it, it would be no small thing to tear it. Uh, the curtain, the veil, uh, don't think about the, uh, you know, the little curtain that, uh, that you have uh, on your windows or even the blackout curtains you might have the thicker drapes of your house. And this veil, and don't think certainly of a flimsy veil, some gossamer type thing. The, the, the thing that they hung there uh, as a separating, it was something much more akin to an oriental rug. It was a big, heavy tapestry that was that curtain and was that veil. And, and you just go and try to rip one of those in two. But when Jesus died, the great one, uh, at the temple, was torn in two. And that was uh, open then to prying eyes, uh, which it had never been before. And all those things which were kept secret were revealed. And that, I think, signifies this right here, that the entrance to the place of God was open through Jesus. And at his death, that was one of the visible signs of it. And so the veil of the temple was torn in two. It says the earth shook and the rocks split. That is from Matthew 27. It's also in Luke 23. But it, it was finished and we didn't need it anymore. As verse 9 will say, this was a symbol for the present time. So as the Hebrew writer is writing, he said this was for the time that was, not for the time that's coming. And of course, he's writing, uh, we believe, just in the last year or two or three of the standing of the temple. Uh, that, that great temple and that whole system is about to, uh, to go under. The judgment of God for the sins of the people, ultimately for their sin of uh, rejecting and crucifying the Messiah, uh, that, uh, that penalty is going to come. Uh, 
uh, that judgment uh, will be on them and their temple will go away again. Their temple had gone away before, uh, had gone to uh, away at the time of captivity. It's now going to go again. It's not going to be a time of captivity because there isn't going to be going and having a faithful remnant be restored because God in his uh, great glory, uh, he's our, the, the glory has left the temple as it were. The glory is now with Christ in the church. So while that stood and while that worked, we're reminded here in verse 9, accordingly, so under that old system and under that system of worship at that place, accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience. Well, I'm sure the people after a while had to wonder, why are we doing this then? Why do we keep doing this? And the next chapter will have that uh, terrible word of dread that these things just end up becoming a reminder of sin year by year. All right, it's time to go sacrifice again. Oh, what are we sacrificing for this time? Your sins. Again, just like last year, just like the year before. Are we ever going to stop doing this? I guess when we stop sinning, <laughs> or I guess when the price is paid for sin, uh, come on, it's time to go. All right, let's go. All right. So, and wouldn't that be a terrible thing if every Sunday, if every Sunday the service were just a reminder that you people are sinners? Hey, uh, good news. Jay's preaching on how you should be doing better. This week's topic, once again, how you have failed. Uh, wouldn't we love? Uh, no, that'd be terrible. That would be dreadful. I do think I know some brethren who preach from uh, that notebook and they sing those songs from the hymnal. There are times when we need to learn we can do better. We do need to learn, hey, stop doing that. No no doubt of that. But if if we do it without a perfection of conscience, if we do it without a hope of forgiveness, if we do it without a real remedy, then how dreadful an experience. And that's where they were. They were in this dreadful, repetitive worship that reminded them of sin without fully dealing with sin. And if we have any kind of gospel that doesn't offer to people and show people the way of perfection of conscience, purity in uh, forgiveness, a real washing uh, in the soul, in the heart where we need it, we're going to be guilty of doing the same thing, except for us it's all the more excusable because it's not the design of the system. This system, in not making them perfect, was designed to drive them to the grace of Christ, realizing it wouldn't be by works of the law that couldn't work enough and offer enough to be cleansed, and especially with the type of things they had to do. Verse 10, since they relate only to food and drink and various washings, regulations of the body imposed until a time of reformation. So they could eat this and they could not eat that. They could do this thing and that thing. And in this occasion, wash with water. and that occasion, uh, get sprinkled with some other thing. In uh, 
all these restrictions that were just so very external. Uh, the other day I was uh, viewing some social media, and one of the things that I see on social media is this rabbi, who's a, he's an interesting character, and uh, he has some interesting things to say. And sometimes there's some things he says about, as he explains Judaism uh, to, uh, to non-Jews, he has some things that are interesting and, uh, to me, uh, you know, uh, possibly helpful as an illustration of a thing. But he was going over the kosher uh, requirements. And he was at an event, and uh, they were serving. They had this ice cream buffet. Uh, they had a whole bunch of different things, and a lot of it was they had all these different ice creams. And this rabbi, he wouldn't eat the ice cream. It's like, well, why not? It's ice cream. Who, who doesn't like ice cream? It wasn't because his doctor told him not to. No, no, he wouldn't eat the ice cream because uh, four hours prior, he'd had a meal with meat. And so they have so extended uh, the instruction of uh, the law to not uh, boil a calf in its own mother's milk that, of course, uh, they won't eat meat and dairy at the same meal. Well, what if I got the cheese from West Virginia? And I, West Virginia is famous for cheese. And I don't know. No. Okay, we got the cheese from Wisconsin. Let's be a little better. I got the cheese from Wisconsin, and I got the beef from Texas. Well, I'm pretty sure I'm not boiling. I'm not going to mix, uh, you know, the mother's milk with the calf. If I got the beef from Texas and I got the cheese from Wisconsin, and maybe I got myself, uh, you know, some some ice cream from some other uh, place. It's you know, I got it from Brahms. It's in Oklahoma. All right, so I got my Brahms ice cream from Oklahoma. I got my Texas beef. I got my Wisconsin cheese. I'm going to have myself a cheeseburger and some ice cream. That sounds like a good way to start this summer off. And the Jewish fellow's like, oh, no, you can't. Mm -mm. No, no. Why not? Because we got these regulations. Well, who gave you those regulations? Well, the rabbis did, but, you know, they're kind of based on what God said in the Old Testament. Yeah, but these are just regulations of the body. Does that affect my spirit? Does that affect my soul? No, we have to keep these things. This is the moral and ethical thing to do. We've got all these regulations. Well, I appreciate, you know, uh, the fact that when God gave a regulation, hey, keep it. And don't just keep it to the minimum. Uh, work out, uh, uh, you know, how it uh, uh, affects you. Work out the implications of it. Uh, try to be careful with it, obviously. But uh, this is not... This is not the way we bridge the gulf between God and man, is it? By what we eat or, or what we drink or by what regulations we follow and how we wash things. It's not. Now, there is, again, this is the whole idea and reason for a priesthood. There is a great gulf between God and man. That's why we have to have a representative that God appoints to bridge the gulf, right? Ever since... You know, we walked, our, at least our parents did, our, our great foreparents, Adam and Eve walked with God in the garden in the cool of the evening, but then they decided to disobey God and make their own way and do their own thing, and they got removed from the garden. And they found out that their own way wasn't near so fancy as Satan had made it out to be, but there was a cherub there uh, stationed uh, to keep sinful men from the tree of life. There's been a separation as between God and men from the beginning, uh, well, from near the beginning, from the fall, and, and it's been a terrible thing. And, and we feel that deeply, but the law didn't fully bridge that gap. Uh, as it says, 
in Isaiah, one of the great prophets of the law, he said, The Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save, nor his ear so dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made separation between you and God, and your sins has hidden his face from you, so he doesn't hear. And then it goes on to describe that world of sin in verse 9 of the same chapter, Isaiah 59. Therefore, justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light, but behold, there's darkness for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope along the wall like blind men. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at midday as in twilight among those who are vigorous. We're like the dead. All of us growl like bears. I, hey, I had that guy in the customer service rep just uh, earlier today. Uh, we, we growl like bears or we moan like doves. Uh, we hope for justice, but there is none. For salvation, but it's far from us. For our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities. Transgressing and denying the Lord, turning away from God, seeking oppression, uh, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving in and uttering from the heart lying words. And you know what? Offering some lambs and some goats and a scapegoat ceremony, and a priest who was sinful and fallen himself and sometimes worse than me, that didn't get it done. And so what did get it done? Well, one of the great hopeful passages in verse 11, but when Christ. But when Christ. And we think about some of these great but uh, passages in the Bible in Acts 2, uh you uh, nailed to the cross uh, Jesus by the hands of godless men and put him to death, but God raised him up. Or Ephesians 2, you were dead in your sins and trespasses, but God being rich in mercy. Or Romans 5, one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone will dare to die, but... God demonstrates his love for us, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. So we have one of these hopeful but passages. Yeah, here it was. But but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, so here came Christ. He's our future high priest. They had those long lists of high priests of the past. Within a few years of the writing of this letter, that's going to cease and go away. It'll just be more pages in the history book. But Christ is that eternal and abiding forever high priest. He's the high priest of the good things to come. I think about this construction, and I, I see it in, in some of the things I follow on social media. They're not all dark and dreary. Uh, again, some of them a Jewish rabbi. But uh, I, I see some things. Uh, I follow some accounts where uh, it's about people who find uh, homes for uh, shelter animals. And they, they, they use the term forever home, right? So the dog or the cat, it gets to go to its forever ever home. And I saw the same thing today. Another thing I saw was uh, uh, some children being adopted. It was uh, pictures of some happy, fam uh, happy family members and uh, the children they were adopting. Uh, they were getting their picture taken with the judge in the courtroom. And it said these children now have their forever family. 
And you just think about uh, doesn't that sound? It's so hopeful and it, it's it's uh, so moving that this pet gets a forever home, this child has a forever family, but we have what? Our forever priest, right? We have this high priest of the good things to come. He's entered a greater and more perfect tabernacle. And that, that first one was pretty good. You go through all those chapters in Exodus and Leviticus where they're building that thing. And even the fasteners are made out of solid gold, right? I I, the, I don't have any solid gold in my house. I mean, I mean, maybe there's a little bit of gold alloy over in one of the jewelry boxes. But imagine if you came to my house and I had golden door handles and golden door hinges, right? Uh <laughs> Uh, if we if we lived in a house like that, we probably wouldn't be able to let people in. Uh, well, they had a tabernacle like that where everything was overlaid with gold and precious stones. But guess what? Nobody could come in except the priest. The priest could go in there for you, and he would go in there because that was the place of God. Well, he, Jesus, has gone into a better tabernacle than that, one not made with hands. That is to say, not of this creation. Again, back in verse 1, it was the earthly sanctuary that it was being described. Well, now Jesus is in the heavenly one. He's got a kingdom not of this world, John 18. He's got a sanctuary. He's got a temple not of this world. And he didn't get there because he was bringing in blood of goats and calves, verse 12. He got there and he made that place suitable for us and the place of our forgiveness because he came through his own blood. But through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Remember earlier it talked about Jesus sat down at the right hand of the Father? He made his sacrifice, and he sat down. The other priest, of all the things they had for the golden furniture in that temple, they didn't have any golden couches. They didn't have any golden chairs for them to sit on because they always had work to do. Jesus, he goes to this great... Temple with God, he finishes, and he sits down with God. It's like uh, you know the beginning of creation. God uh, created for six days, and then he rested. Well, why did he rest on the seventh day? Was he tired out? Creation wear him out? I, yeah, just just taking care of about one quarter of an acre of God's green grass wears me out, right? Especially you want me to mow it and edge it uh, and do all that. Uh, you know, you need it edged and trimmed. Uh, that's a little harder. But one quarter of God's green green earth, that'll wear me out. Uh, but God made the whole universe. But he didn't rest because he was tired. He rested because he was finished, right? And so what does Jesus do in regard to his priestly work? He offers a sacrifice. He obtains eternal redemption. He's got it redeemed for all time and all ages. And so he sits down at the right hand of God, having completed that work for us. So, verse 13, For the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling on those who've been defiled, sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh. So again, it, it kept them in fellowship with God in promise of the sacrifice that would come that would really cleanse their souls. It was enough for God to be in fellowship with these people, for them to follow these things, to be his separate and holy nation. But it didn't fully deal with sin, but it was good enough for that. Well, how much more, verse 14, will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? 
So here's the full forgiveness. Here is the full salvation. As we sing in the hymn, Oh, the love that drew salvation's plan. Oh, the grace that brought it down to man. Oh, the mighty gulf that God did span at Calvary. Mercy there was great and grace was free. Pardon there was multiplied to me. There my burdened soul found liberty at Calvary. So here's the the eternal and full cleansing from all dead works to serve the living God. So this is the better hope. This is the better promises, the better ministry of Jesus. Thank you for listening to this sermon from the Malvane Church of Christ. Additional sermons and information available at malvanechurch.com. Come see what a difference the Bible way makes.